Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and this week is episode 238 for September 20th, 2021. I just got back from my annual retreat. I do a personal retreat every year around the fall at some point, and uh, realized that I look back, I've been doing this 14 years now. I forget why I was originally inspired to do this, but very early on in this process, I read the book, The Happiness Project. Um, by Gretchen Rubin, and great book, and actually I have a signed copy, which I'm very proud to have, and it sort of appealed to me as an engineer and kind of looking at a problem and trying to make things better and having a, a deliberate way of kind of planning out things that I could be doing to be happier. So what it's kind of turned into, though, is every year I go off on my own for usually three nights. And uh, I'll spend some time kind of reviewing what I've done over the last year, kind of thinking about what I want to do for the next year, and then finally putting down goals for the next year. And I journal a lot. I've been journaling since I was a kid, off and on. Um, but I've been journaling on my computer for, oh gosh, decades. So for me, this is a lot of this is about journaling, and I don't want to <laughs> spend too much more time on this, but I, I really would like to recommend it as something you might want to consider. I've really enjoyed doing it, you know, getting away and getting away from your home and all your chores and, you know, all the responsibilities you might have at home is really key. And, you know, so you can really focus on this stuff. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've found that it's really kind of helped me make sure that I'm addressing the things that I want to get done and think about those things that make me happy, things that makes me unhappy and things I want to reduce in my life. Uh, anyway, so I had a good time. It was a little bit awkward this year. Uh, I had some weird glitches come up that kind of detracted from the thing, but I still firmly believe in this and I will continue to do this in, until the day I die. I really enjoy having this time to myself and I'm an introspective kind of guy anyway. But once a year, I think it's just mandatory uh, to do this and just kind of get out there and really think about what you want to get done and make sure those things happen. Anyway, all right, so we've got a new show for you this week. <laughs> Sorry to ramble on that. Got a quick update for you on the Revil ransomware gang. Some good news there for people that have been uh, affected by those guys. Want to talk about a nasty Microsoft zero-day bug that has been fixed but is still being exploited. Got a couple articles about WhatsApp, and I think... Um, even though they're about WhatsApp, I, for me, these articles are going to be a good chance to talk about what end-to-end -end encryption really means and understanding the threat model uh, around privacy and security for secure messaging apps. I'm going to talk about a horrible home security system that is way too easy to hack. There was a really interesting kerfuffle recently involving ProtonMail, something I have recommended multiple times on this podcast and in my blog and in the book all over the place uh, as a private email alternative to Google and others. But they recently had to give up IP addresses for some of its users when it said it wasn't going to do that. And uh, as usual with these things, there are nuances to this. So I want to kind of talk about that. There's a new Mac malware out there being spread through poisoned search engine results. And I'll explain what that means. And then we'll get to the tip of the week. It's a pretty simple one, but uh, an important one. So there's the summary of what we're going to cover. Let's get to the news. So first off, I've got an update for the Revil ransomware. 
and that's spelled R-E-V-I-L. Some people pronounce it R-E-V-I-L. I think it's just kind of interesting to call it Revil. And you might recall we talked about this not too long ago, where this Revil ransomware gang, um, who have done a lot of bad things recently, just out of nowhere, shut down and, and just went away. They are actually back <laughs> and up to no good. But there's an interesting story about all the people who were affected prior to their going away. And so this is from Bleeping Computer. Uh, who obviously does a lot of great work on ransomware. I really would like to get Lawrence Abrams back on a show. It's been a long time, but uh, he's a hard man to find. So anyway, this is from Bleeping Computer. It says, a free master decryptor for the Revil ransomware operation has been released, allowing all victims encrypted before the gang disappeared to recover their files for free. The Revil master decryptor was created by cybersecurity firm Bitdefender in collaboration with a trusted law enforcement partner. While Bitdefender could not share details about how they obtained the master decryption key or the law enforcement agency involved, they told Bleeping Computer that it works for all Revil victims encrypted before July 13th. Revil ransomware victims can download the master decryptor from Bitdefender, and if you look at the show notes, you'll find this article, and there's a link there for the instructions on how to do it and decrypt entire computers at once or specify specific folders to decrypt. The Revil ransomware operation, aka Sodino Kibi, is believed to be a rebrand or successor to the now quote-unquote retired ransomware group known as GANDCRAB. Since launching in 2019, Revil has conducted numerous attacks against well-known companies, including JBS, Coop, Travelex, and Gupo Flurry. <laughs> I've never heard of that one before. Finally, in a massive July 2nd attack using a Casilla zero-day vulnerability, the ransomware gang encrypted 60 managed service providers and over 1,500 businesses worldwide. After facing intense scrutiny by international law enforcement and increased political tensions between Russia and the USA, Revil suddenly shut down its operation on July 13th and disappeared. While Revil was shut down, Casilla mysteriously received a master decryptor for their attack, allowing MSPs, or managed service providers, and their customers to recover files for free. As Bitdefender states that victims who Revil encrypted before July 13th can use this decryptor, it is safe to assume that the ransomware operation's disappearance was tied to this law enforcement investigation. It is also likely that Casilla obtaining the Revil master decryption key for the attack on their customers is also tied to the same investigation. While Revil has returned to attacking victims earlier this month, the release of this master decryptor comes as a massive boon for existing victims who chose not to pay or simply couldn't after the ransomware gang disappeared. So again, if you were affected by this and you're still affected by this and you were hit prior to July 13th of this year, uh, definitely go into the show notes and find this article and, and find the instructions there on how to decrypt your files. All right, next up, there was a nasty Microsoft bug found recently and has since been patched, but it is still being exploited. So the first one is from MSN or Microsoft. It says, a recently reported security vulnerability in Microsoft's MS HTML browser engine is being found all over the world. And Kaspersky says it, quote, expects to see an increase in attacks using this vulnerability, unquote. MS HTML is the under-the-hood browser engine that is found in every single currently available version of Windows, both server and PC. As such, this vulnerability affects everyone with a Windows machine of any kind, meaning it's a serious threat. To make matters worse, the vulnerability, which is uh, officially dubbed CVE-2021-40444, is easy to exploit. All an attacker has to do is send a Microsoft Office document to the intended victim that contains a malicious script. 
Like plenty of other attacks using malicious documents, the victim has to open the document in order to infect their machine with the attacker's actual payload, which is retrieved by the script in the document. Once downloaded, Kaspersky says that most are using ActiveX controls to perform further malicious actions. In the wild, Kaspersky said, most of the detected attacks install backdoors that give attackers additional access to the infected machines. Kaspersky said that it's been detecting these kinds of attacks all over the world, and there's a short list of popular targets that won't surprise anyone familiar with the usual industries targeted by cybercriminals. Research and development, energy, large industry, banking, medical technology, telecommunications, and IT were all listed as being the most commonly attacked, at least by its metrics. So how do you avoid this? Luckily for most Windows users... This attack is easily avoided by following good cybersecurity best practices. Don't open documents from unknown sources and be suspicious of unusual attachment names and types and the type of message that accompanies attachments from known sources. In addition, Microsoft said that users who don't have administrative rights on their machines will be much less impacted. So IT teams should focus on those with administrative or power user rights for applying patches and workarounds. Speaking of which, Microsoft has recently released security updates that address the MSHTML vulnerability. Because of the ease, widespread nature, and potential damage of this exploit, be sure to update all affected systems, which means anything running Windows, as soon as possible. In situations where updating a Windows system may be difficult, Microsoft has published workarounds that disable ActiveX via group policy, disabled ActiveX with a custom registry key, and a Windows Explorer preview disable registry edit that will prevent scripts from being run without fully opening a document. Okay, so anyway, the upshot there is, as always, patch early, patch often. Microsoft released uh, its Patch Tuesday stuff last week. Uh, make sure you are keeping all of your Windows devices up to date. But it also mentioned something that I've mentioned here before, which is key, and that is that this vulnerability was severely mitigated if the targeted system or targeted account was a non-admin account. And this is something I have said recently on the show, and that is a key strategy for defending your systems, your computer systems, is to not run every day with admin privileges. Run with a limited account, a non-admin account. So that is to say that every system, every computer you have should have at least two accounts, an admin account and a non-admin account. And your everyday usage of that computer should be using the non-admin account. And the easiest way to set that up, since more than likely you are using a single admin account right now, is to create a separate admin account, I usually just call it admin, uh, and make it an administrator for that PC. And you can do this on a Mac too, by the way. You can have admin accounts on Mac and you could follow the same process. Create a separate admin account for your computer and then log out of your current account, log into the new admin account, and then change the permissions on your regular everyday account to be non-administrative. Uh, and then once you uh, log back in, uh, your old account that you use all the time will no longer be an admin account. And all that means is when it comes time to do something that requires admin privileges, you'll have to enter the credentials for the admin account in order to get that done. But this one maneuver, especially on Windows, uh, will save you a lot of heartache and protect you from a lot of malicious stuff. All right, next up, I've got a couple of articles about WhatsApp. And uh, as you may recall, WhatsApp is probably the most popular messaging app on the planet, probably even over Facebook Messenger. And But of course, Facebook now owns WhatsApp because <laughs> they wanted all those people and they bought WhatsApp for a lot of money back in the day. And WhatsApp back in the day was a very private messaging app. 
I don't remember if they were uh, originally encrypted end to end by default, uh, but they certainly had that capability and still do. Uh, and then Facebook bought them out and the people who originally found a WhatsApp got really ticked off and left. <laughs> so, uh, and one of them went to go help fund Signal. So, Anyway, I've got a couple articles here about WhatsApp and Facebook. Uh, there was an article recently from ProPublica that kind of stirred some controversy. And uh, you know, I love ProPublica. They do some good stuff. But I think this article has the right take on it. They went a little bit far in how they described what was going on here. So anyway, first article I'm going to read is from uh, Wired Magazine. It says, and it's titled, WhatsApp Fixes Its Biggest Encryption Loophole. Few, if any, services have done more to bring secure messaging to more people than WhatsApp. Since 2016, the messaging platform has enabled end-to-end -end encryption by default, no less, for its billions of users. No complaints there. But if you back up your WhatsApp messages to iCloud or Google Cloud, those chats no longer have that level of protection, a lesson that former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort and others have learned the hard way. To be abundantly clear, this does not mean that WhatsApp's encryption is somehow faulty or that anyone is spying on your messages, unless they have a subpoena. It's a loophole. It's a function of the WhatsApp relying on other people's clouds to stash your stuff. Now, thanks to some clever cryptography, the Facebook-owned company has cooked up a way to close it. Over the next few weeks, WhatsApp will roll out an update that adds an end-to-end -end encryption to backups, should you so choose. It's a complex solution to a long-standing issue, and one that sets a precedent for companies that don't want to rely quite so extensively on the security of the world's handful of dominant cloud providers. To better understand that solution, it helps to clarify the problem. WhatsApp encrypts messages between senders and recipients. The service can't see them at any point on that journey, nor after they arrive. An exception here is that if you report a message as abusive, WhatsApp contractors may review it. This doesn't break or even undermine its end-to-end -end encryption. Once someone receives a message, they can show it to whomever they want. Encryption isn't magic. And that's the subject of the next article we'll talk about. So far, so good. The potential trouble starts if you back up your messages to iCloud or Google Cloud, which are not end-to-end -end encrypted, which in turn means that Apple or Google could hand them over to law enforcement if it comes knocking. And this is a quote from uh, Rihanna Pfefferkorn, uh, who's a research scholar at Stanford Internet Observatory. She says, quote, So many company services run on a different company's cloud, and the security of that cloud isn't under their control. It's not, she says, that Apple or Google or any other cloud provider is necessarily unsafe, but the saying, the cloud is just someone else's computer and the liabilities it portends apply whether you're an individual uploading a few photos from your phone or a company with billions of privacy-minded users. WhatsApp isn't ditching Google Cloud or iCloud, but it's going to let you encrypt your backups before they head to those clouds in the first place. Think of it like handing a secret message to a courier. If you write it out in plain English and they get apprehended, you're toast. But if you write it in a code that they themselves don't know how to decipher, all you've given up is a bunch of squiggles and dots. All right, let me just stop there for a second. So the way I would phrase that is a little differently. Basically, Google and Apple, when you store stuff in the cloud, it is encrypted. They do encrypt that data. However, they hold the key, meaning that they can decrypt that data whenever they want. And so that means that somebody at Apple or Google could, and that, you know, that could be a rogue employee, uh, or it could be somebody responding to a subpoena or a national security letter or whatever can decrypt that data. The reason it's encrypted is to prevent a hacker from getting in there, an authorized person, and getting at that data and being able to do anything with it. So it's protection against that. Um, but as long as Apple or Google are the ones that hold the keys, they can, or the right person to that company with the right permissions, can decrypt that data. And so what 
Facebook and WhatsApp are doing here are going to give you the option of holding those keys instead of them. Something I wish Apple would be doing and something I hope they will be doing at some point for all of iCloud. Sorry, back to the article. If you opt to use the new feature, WhatsApp will encrypt your messages, images, videos, and so on with a random key that's generated on your device. You can either secure that key with a password or manually with a 64-digit encryption key. The password is almost certainly easier to remember, and if you go that route, WhatsApp will store your key in a backup key vault that lives in a so-called hardware secure module, or HSM, a sort of digital safety deposit box that keeps your key secret from WhatsApp, Apple, Google, and anyone else. Your password is what unlocks it and gives you access to your chat backups. The 64-digit encryption key may be harder to keep track of, and if you choose to manage it yourself, it doesn't go into the HSM backup key vault, which removes a potential, if unlikely, point of failure. Again, all this is saying is this gives you the option to set the encryption key for the stuff on the cloud so that only you can decrypt it. All right, let's finish the article. WhatsApp has built in a few additional protections as well. Too many wrong password attempts and the key will become permanently inaccessible, a feature designed to prevent so-called brute force attacks. And the service replicates your key in HSM-based backup key vaults across five geographically disparate data centers to ensure that you can still access your chats even if one of them has an outage. And again, remember, this is all about cloud storage. So these are your chats stored on someone else's computer. And while generally it's preferable to enable privacy and security features by default, in this case, opt-in makes sense. And this is another quote from Pfefferkorn. She says, it's easy to accidentally lock yourself out of an account by forgetting a password. And if that means losing all the conversations you've had on WhatsApp, you might not want to take that chance. For a lot of people, not losing their backups is a more pressing concern than adding an extra layer of security, unquote. For those who need that level of security, though, WhatsApp's end-to-end -end encrypted backups are a welcome development, one that other messaging services will hopefully embrace as well. <coughs> Apple. <coughs> and another quote from Pfefferkorn, she says, quote, We may see more companies decide to build in an extra layer of security for their own users instead of depending on their cloud provider. Of course, not everyone has the resources WhatsApp does, but with 2 billion users, WhatsApp also has a lot more people depending on it than most services do, unquote. Even with end-to-end -end encrypted backups, you may still have valid concerns over the amount of data WhatsApp shares with Facebook or the metadata it collects. And secure messaging service Signal doesn't use cloud backups at all, obviating the issue entirely. But the step WhatsApp is taking today balances usability, scale, and protection in a way that no other encrypted messaging service currently does. So I would say WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger... And Apple's iMessages are probably the biggest messaging services on the planet. They're all at least capable of full end-to-end -end encryption. iMessage is uh, encrypted end-to-end -end by default. But again, uh, when you're storing these messages in a cloud service provider, iCloud, Google Cloud, whatever, they are encrypted currently with someone else's key. So this is a welcome step by WhatsApp slash Facebook in giving the power to the user to encrypt them with their own key. That's great. And it's something that Apple is sorely lacking, and I hope they will address sometime soon. All right, so this next article is a response to another article, which I'm not going to read, uh, but it, you'll pick it up through implication. Uh, and this is from Inc.com, and it's a kind of a snarky uh, opinion piece uh, entitled, No, Facebook isn't reading your private WhatsApp messages. The problem is much worse. So let me, let me read an excerpt from this article uh, from Inc.com. It says, On Tuesday, and this would have been, I think, last Tuesday, 
ProPublica reported that Facebook employs 1,000 people whose job it is to read WhatsApp messages reported by users. The piece, entitled, quote, How Facebook Undermines Privacy Protections for Its 2 Billion WhatsApp Users, unquote, would lead you to believe that the publication discovered a new way Facebook is involved in a gross invasion of user privacy. I think by now we've all come to recognize that Facebook's entire business model is, in fact, an invasion of user privacy. That's not something unique to this situation. But in this case, it's not exactly right. More important, the fact that it seemed entirely possible is the real issue. No one trusts Facebook, even when it's arguably doing the right thing, which I think is true in this case. Here's what I mean. When you send a message using WhatsApp, they are encrypted, meaning that only the sender and the recipient are able to read them. WhatsApp can't read them, and neither can Facebook. It's one of the reasons WhatsApp is the world's largest messaging service. It's earned users' trust by protecting their privacy. That was one of the reasons it was such a big deal when Facebook bought the company in 2015. People rightly worried that WhatsApp's commitment to encryption and privacy might change. Remarkably, it hasn't. That isn't even really the issue here, even though the headline might lead you to believe it is. Although your messages are encrypted, when a user reports a message as abusive or harassment, those messages can be reviewed by a human. ProPublica's report suggests that this means that while messages are and encrypted, the review represents a backdoor. Except, it doesn't. Think of it this way. I have four young children. On occasion, because they are kids, they do things they shouldn't. Sometimes they say mean things to each other. Most of the time, they are savvy enough to say them outside of mom or dad's earshot. In that case, I have no way of knowing what's happening in their conversation. Their quote-unquote messages are kept secret, at least from me. Sometimes, however, one of them will come to me and, as kids do, repeat whatever was said by their big mean brother or sister. That quote-unquote message, so to speak, is no longer private because it was revealed by the recipient. We'll set aside the fact that kids sometimes embellish or simply make up the offending statements. In the case of messaging, there is a literal copy of the message on the recipient's device and they can forward such to anyone they want. Just because the message is encrypted and kept private from WhatsApp, there's literally nothing preventing the recipient from revealing the contents of the message to anyone they want, including WhatsApp or Facebook. That's exactly what happens when someone reports a message as harassment. Part of the problem is that people assume that encryption means that no one they don't want to read a message will ever have access to it, or that there's no way to be held accountable for anything you send to anyone else. Except, if you send an offensive message, the recipient isn't bound by encryption. They're at the other end of the end-to-end -end encryption. They can do what they want with it. That said, Facebook has a much bigger problem here, which is that it didn't take much of a leap to assume that the company is, in fact, reading your messages. Facebook has such a trust deficit, especially when it comes to privacy, that no one is willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's an obvious problem. As the ProPublica piece points out, WhatsApp isn't transparent about the fact that it reviews reports. Users are led to assume that their messages are both secure and private. That's true to the extent that end-to-end -end encryption means no one can peer into your message and read what you send to your friends or contacts. It doesn't mean, however, that those friends can't share those messages or report them to WhatsApp. And the idea that the company is paying 1,000 people to review those reports gives the impression that there are a lot of messages to review. It also paints a picture that Facebook just has people sitting around looking at your private messages. Personally, I think it's a good thing that Facebook recognizes that it needs a system in place to handle the torrent of abusive content generated by 2 billion users. The fact that users can report such content is an important balance between respecting user privacy and providing a mechanism for people who are being victimized to get help.
On the other hand, the fact that people are readily willing to believe the worst about Facebook is an indictment of the company's reputation. The lesson here should be obvious. Trust is your most valuable asset. Trust is earned over time as you consistently uphold your values and demonstrate that you have your users' best interests in mind. When you don't, you break trust, even when it turns out you were trying to do the right thing. So yeah, I pretty much agree with that assessment. And ProPublica did come out with this kind of incendiary report um, that did imply, I think, that there's this backdoor in, you know, end-to-end encryption that's, that's broken, that the WhatsApp was broken. It's it's not. And this article, I think, has the right approach to that, and which is to say that it didn't break end-to-end encryption. It's still there. No one between the two endpoints can intercept and read that message. But the people at the two ends can. That's the whole point, right? If it, <laughs> Once I get that message, it has to be decrypted for me to be able to read it. So on my device, on my end, it's legible. It's not encrypted. And what I do with that, including showing it to somebody else by either handing them my phone or taking a screenshot or copying and pasting, or in this case, using a built-in function of the WhatsApp app to report uh, a message as being harassment or in violation of terms of service or whatever, for whatever reason, I as an end user can report that. And when I do that, that makes that message and only that message available to Facebook for review. Anyway, I thought that article was good in that it brought a lot of those things uh, out in stark relief and helped us understand what's really going on there. And honestly, I, I don't see a problem with this. Now, note, Facebook also just released or uh, announced that they are going to be releasing these new spiffy high-tech sunglasses called Ray-Ban Stories, meaning that they're partnering with Ray-Ban, a very popular sunglass maker, to create these glasses that have a built-in camera. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. Google tried this with Google Glass several years ago and uh, got a lot of blowback and a lot of pushback on this. And in fact, <laughs> people wearing these glasses, these Google Glass glasses were called glass holes. Because, I mean, let's think about it. I mean, <laughs> are you really going to walk around all day with a camera on your head videotaping or taking pictures of everybody you see. Now, I understand why that is interesting. And the way Google does it, did it, is they want to provide augmented reality, AR. And this is the sci-fi movie technique of, you know, you're looking through the robot's eyes and you can see that the robot has all these overlay, this digital overlay on, on what they're seeing, you know, potentially putting a target on someone or putting a name over someone as they're walking past because they've identified them, you know, quickly reading license plates or phone numbers or computer screens or whatever. I personally, as a technologist, think that is really cool. And I would love to have that someday. But the problem is that means you've got a video camera on your head, constantly videoing everybody and everything around you. And that is going to cause a real creep factor. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about it now. I'm going to probably save this for my episode where I talk about my annual best and worst gift idea list. <laughs> and this will, I think you can predict where, uh, which list this one's going to fall in. But anyway, I'll save that for a little bit later. Uh, just know that I know about that and we will be talking about that in the future. All right, next up, uh, this is from Naked Security, the Sophos blog, and it's called Pwned, the home security system that can be hacked with your email address. Uh, now this article went into a lot of technical detail. I've tried to summarize that here where I can. 
So there may be a couple disjoint paragraphs in here. I'll try to smooth that over. But uh, anyway, let me read. Uh, <laughs> let me read about this because if you've got this system, you need to know. Uh, and if even if you don't have this system, it's helpful to understand that security systems can be broken. All right, so here's from the article. It says, a researcher at vulnerability and red team company Rapid7 recently uncovered a pair of risky security bugs in a digital home security product. The first bug, reported back in May of 2021 and dubbed CVE-2021-39276, means that an attacker who knows the email address against which you are registered your product can effectively use your email as a password to issue commands to the system, including turning the entire alarm off. The affected product comes from the company Fortress Security Store, which sells two branded home security setups, the entry-level S03 Wi-Fi security system, which starts at $130, and the more expensive S6 Titan 3G 4G Wi-Fi security system starting at $250. The intrepid researcher Arvind Vishwakarma acquired an S3 starter system, which includes a control panel, remote control fobs, a door or window sensor, a motion detector, and an indoor siren. Unfortunately, it didn't take much for Vishwakarma to compromise the system and figure out how to control it without authorization both locally and remotely. Like many modern Internet of Things products, the Fortress security products make use of cloud-based servers on the Internet for control and monitoring purposes. Accessing the Fortress cloud via what's known in the jargon as a Web API, short for Application Programming Interface. And this is where it starts getting into a lot of technical stuff. So I'm just going to try to summarize that here. But basically, this guy poked around at this web API. And it's very easy to do. I've done this many times myself. Trying to test some software that I've been working on. With very simple tools, you can send requests to these web APIs and get responses. And through some various probing, he figured out that all he had to know is this person's email address in order to submit a valid query that was not in any other way authenticated by the system. That's the problem here. And part of what he could get back in with one of these queries was a unique identifier for the security system. Now, the security system labels this an IMEI, uh, or an International Mobile Equipment Identifier. It's usually associated with cell phone equipment, but it's actually used by both of their products, even though one of their products doesn't technically have a cellular modem in it. So they've kind of used the IMEI term as more of a serial number, a generic serial number. But this IMEI can then be used to do other things. So let me pick up now that I've kind of explained that. Let me return to the article where it talks about this. It says, unfortunately, this IMEI is used not just as a username, which would be ill-advised on its own, but as a full-blown password that can be used as a permanently valid authentication token in future requests to the Fortress Web API. In other words, simply by knowing your Fortress username, Vishwakarma could acquire your device's IMEI, and then simply by knowing your IMEI, he could issue authenticated commands to your device. So, if you can guess your email address, he can get your IMEI, and then he can deactivate your system remotely, at will. According to Rapid7, Fortress decided not to respond to these bugs, closing the report back in May of 2021, and didn't object to the company's proposed disclosure of the flaws at the end of August 2021. Thus, it looks as though the company isn't planning any sort of firmware update, whether it's for control units or key fobs, and therefore these vulnerabilities will not be patched, at least not in systems that have already been sold. So, if you have one of these systems, or are a similar-looking system under a different brand that you suspect may be derived from the same original equipment supplier, there are two workarounds you can use. First, 
Use an email address that an attacker is unlikely already to know or to guess. Webmail services such as Outlook and Gmail, for example, allow you to have multiple email aliases for your main account simply by adding text such as plus ABCD whatever at the end of your regular email name. For instance, if you use nickname at example.com as your regular email address, then messages to nickname plus random 5xxg8 at example.com ought to be delivered to the same mailbox, even though the two addresses don't match. Note that this is an example of security by obscurity, so it's not an ideal solution, but it does make things harder for an attacker or an ill-disposed friend or family member. Second thing you could do, avoid using the key fob remote controls at all. This means you'll always need to have your laptop or mobile phone handy or to do everything directly from the control panel, but if you never set up your key fobs to work with your original control unit, they can't give away any secrets that an attacker could use in a subsequent replay attack. So I actually glossed over that part of the article where it talked about the key fob vulnerability. But this is just, you know, bad security, really bad security by design. And worse yet, they company said, yeah, no, we're not going to fix that. So if you happen to have one of these systems, you've probably already registered with a certain email address. Maybe you can change it to be another email address that would be hard for someone to guess. That's again, not great security, but better than nothing. And then for the other vulnerability, don't use a key fob. Now I, I'm guessing that you would have to be within range of that key fob to sniff out the wireless stuff that's going on there. So that would require a totally local attack as whereas the email attack would be from anywhere on the planet. But it also just goes to show that, man, just because just because these companies are security companies don't mean that they've got good security. So, you know, what is a consumer to do? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't know what to I mean, I could look at a company. I could try to dig into them a little bit and figure out how how good they may or may not be with security. But, boy, it's it's a black box. It's as a consumer, it's almost impossible to tell, which, you know, that might be a great reason for some sort of regulation and third party independent security tracking. But for now, it's just buyer beware. And, uh, you know, subscribe to this podcast so that when these things come up, you can at least maybe hear about them. All right, next up, ProtonMail is a great service. Uh, I really like them. I still recommend them even after what I'm about to read to you. But what this article is going to show you is that there are realities, uh, one of them being that email is just really hard to make secure and private. It was just not built for that. And second, that companies with the best of intentions are still subject to local law. So anyway, let me let me read this article from Wired. This weekend, and I think that's a week ago now for you guys, this weekend, news broke that the anonymous email service ProtonMail turned over a French climate activist's IP address and browser fingerprint to Swiss authorities. The move seemed to contradict the company's own privacy-focused policies, which as recently as last week stated, quote, By default, we do not keep any IP logs which can be linked to your anonymous email account, unquote. After providing the activist's metadata to Swiss authorities, ProtonMail removed the section that had promised no IP logs, replacing it with one saying, quote, ProtonMail is an email that respects privacy and puts people, not advertisers, first, unquote. As usual, the devil is in the details. ProtonMail's original policy simply said that the service does not keep IP logs by default. However, as a Swiss company, ProtonMail was obliged to comply with a Swiss court's demand that it begin logging IP address and browser fingerprint information for a particular ProtonMail account. That account was operated by the Parisian chapter of Youth for Climate, which Wikipedia describes as a Greta Thunberg-inspired movement focused on school students who skip Friday classes to attend protests. 
According to multiple statements Proton Mail issued on Monday, it was unable to appeal the Swiss demand for IP logging on that account. The service could not appeal both because a Swiss law had actually been broken and because, quote, legal tools for serious crimes, unquote, were used. Tools that Proton Mail believes were not appropriate to the case at hand, but which it was legally required to comply with. In addition to removing the misleading, if technically correct, reference to the default logging policy, Proton Mail pledged to encourage activists to use the Tor network. The new Your Data, Your Rules section on Proton Mail's front page directly links to a landing page aggregating information about using Tor to access Proton Mail. Using Tor to access Proton Mail may accomplish what Proton Mail itself legally cannot, the obfuscation of the user's IP address. Since the Tor network hides a user's network origin prior to packets ever reaching Proton Mail, even a valid subpoena can't get that information out of Proton Mail because it never receives it in the first place. It's worth noting that the anonymity offered by Tor relies on technical means, not policies, which could be a double-edged sword. If a government agency can compromise Tor nodes that traffic passes through so as to track its origins, there is no policy preventing the government from doing so, or for using that data for law enforcement purposes. ProtonMail also operates a VPN service called ProtonVPN, and it points out that Swiss law prohibits the country's courts from compelling a VPN service to log IP addresses. In theory, if Youth for Climate had used ProtonVPN to access ProtonMail, the Swiss court could not have compelled the service to expose its quote-unquote real IP address. However, the company seems to be leaning more heavily towards recommending Tor for this particular purpose. ProtonMail is also careful to point out that although its user's IP address and browser fingerprint were collected by Swiss authorities acting on behalf of Interpol, the company's guarantees of email content privacy were not breached. The service uses end-to-end encryption and deliberately does not possess the key necessary to decrypt a user's email body or attachments. Unlike the source IP address and the browser fingerprint, collecting that data is not possible simply by changing a configuration on the company's own servers as demanded by a court order. Although ProtonMail can and does encrypt the email body itself with keys unavailable to the servers processing them, the SMTP protocol requires that the email sender, email recipient, and the message timestamps be server accessible. Accessing the service via Tor or a VPN may help obscure IP addresses and browser fingerprints, but the service can still be legally compelled to provide any of those fields to Swiss law enforcement. And by then, by those fields, they mean email sender, recipient, and timestamps. In addition, email subject lines could be encrypted without breaking the SMTP protocol, but in practice, Proton Mail service does not, which means the relevant courts may compel the service to provide that data also. All right, so let me summarize that again. Email was not built to be private. It just wasn't. The protocols like SMTP, or I think that stands for Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, SMTP is one of the three protocols involved with sending and receiving emails. POP3 and IMAP are the other two. You may have heard of those. But email has been around a long, long time. I was sending emails when I was in college back in the uh, uh, late 80s and early 90s. And it was used before that, well before that. It just it just wasn't built with privacy in mind. So companies like ProtonMail and Tutanota and some of these others have come along with services that encrypt the contents and any attachments of your emails by default, which is great. But for email to work and interoperate with other email service providers, it needs to comply with these protocols that have been around forever. And so some parts of your email just can't be encrypted and still 
be delivered. So that's one thing to take away from this article. But the other maybe more important one here is that ProtonMail is dedicated to privacy. They have done everything within their power to protect privacy, but they are still subject to the laws of the countries they are in. And even Switzerland, who's got a lot of great privacy laws, do have exceptions uh, in law enforcement cases. And so what this article did mention, though, which was even worse, is I believe in Switzerland, if uh, you are served with a court order to start tracking somebody, and that's what happened here. Uh, the Swiss government came to ProtonMail and said, hey, I know you don't log IP addresses by default, but here's a court order that says for this guy, you need to start logging IP addresses. I believe in Switzerland, from what I've heard, is that they are supposed to then notify the person that they are being tracked. But there's an exception even to that, apparently, because this was of such a nature as they were able to put a gag order on ProtonMail and even prevent that from happening. So it's tough out there. <laughs> if you really want to have true end-to-end -end encrypted stuff, there's a lot of hoops you got to jump through. And metadata can be very damning. You don't have to have the contents of the message uh, oftentimes to, to learn a lot about somebody. Uh, metadata can do that. And email, it's really, really hard. I'll, in fact, I'll just say it's impossible to use standard email today and have all of the metadata be fully encrypted. You have to, I mean, at least just with the service itself, I mean, you have to do things like they're talking about here. You'd have to use Tor to try to hide the IP address, but even that wouldn't hide the sender and the recipient email address of the timestamps and possibly not the subject line of the email. All right. So anyway, moving on, let's go to our last uh, article for the day, and then we'll get to the tip of the week. And this is from Tom's Guide, and it's uh, entitled New Mac Malware Spreads Via Search Results. A new strain of Mac malware that spreads via poisoned search engine results has been discovered in China and could spread to other countries. To make sure you're not infected by this sort of thing, be very careful about what you download and scan every downloaded file with one of the best Mac antivirus programs. And I'll return to some of that in a minute. You should also get your software from the Mac App Store as often as possible and be wary of other sources. As detailed by Mac security researcher and friend of the show, Patrick Wardle, in a blog post earlier this week, the malware, which he calls Zuru, was tweeted out by Chinese researcher Z, and that's all I have for identification is this ZHI name. Z was publicizing a blog post by a Chinese user who found that queries on the Chinese search engine Baidu for the Mac app iTerm2 returned a clone of the legitimate iTerm2 website iTerm2 is a free alternative to the default Mac terminal app, which, by the way, I use all the time. Mac users who downloaded the installer from the fake iTerm2 site achieved a working copy of the app, which passed the gatekeeper check and installed just fine because it was digitally signed by an Apple developer and wasn't flagged by any antivirus software as malicious. The fake app wasn't notarized with an extra security badge that Apple grants apps it has verified to be trustworthy. And note that the real iTerm2 app is notarized. But even though the Mac will notify a user that an app hasn't been notarized, the user can still choose to install it. There's a little something extra in the fake iTerm2 app, a downloader that itself reaches out to an online server and installs at least two more strains of malware. One of the two new pieces of malware is an information stealer that profiles the Mac it's running on, steals the user's keychain database containing passwords and other sensitive data, and packages all the data in a zip file before sending it back to the same server from which the information stealer was downloaded. The other piece of malware masquerades as a Google Update application and is downloaded from a different server, 
Wardle wasn't able to completely dissect this piece of malware, so he's not quite sure what it does. But he discovered that the server where it resides has been flagged as hosting a pirated copy of Cobalt Strike, a legitimate penetration testing tool that criminals have cracked and repurposed for illicit means. As Wordle noted, it's possible that this mysterious fake Google update is actually a Cobalt Strike beacon, a program that creates a hidden backdoor on a system for other Cobalt Strike users to find. There's a bit of good news. Apple has revoked the developer certificate used to sign the fake iTerm2 installer. The fake iTerm2 site is now offline. Baidu has removed the poison results from its search engine. And about a dozen of the best Mac antivirus programs now recognize the fake installer as malware. But it wouldn't take much for the criminals behind this to replicate their methods with another website, another corrupted Mac app, and another Mac developer license, which costs just $99. Okay, so there are a couple takeaways from this article. First of all, search engines can be hacked or poisoned, meaning that there are ways to cause a search engine like Google, or in this case Baidu, or Bing, or Yandex, or whatever, to return fake results, or corrupted results, or results that are going to eventually reroute to the wrong site. And that is what happened here. So they found a popular developer tool called iTerm2. Uh, They took its website, recreated it, cloned it, made a complete copy of it that looks just like the original, and then somehow tricked the Baidu search engine into returning a search result to their fake site instead of the real one. And then, of course, they had you, right? I mean, you go there, you, you, you think you're on the right site, you click on their button to download the software, you download it, install it. Hey, there's a little pop-up that says, this isn't notarized, are you sure you want to do this? Well, yeah, I just got this from iTerm2, I trust these guys, I'm going to install it. Unfortunately, you just installed malware. And by the way, there are other ways to accomplish this kind of the same redirect. You can also poison DNS. And DNS is the domain name system. Uh, that's the phone book for the internet, which is when you type in Amazon.com and it returns you an IP address. That is really what your computer needs to talk to the Amazon servers. And if you can find some way to corrupt the, the DNS entries or have your device go to a, a rogue DNS server, then you, when someone types in Amazon.com, you could actually send them to your copy of Amazon.com. Now that in practice is harder to do. So I did say I'd back up and talk about this Mac antivirus thing. I've got a really mixed um, opinion on using antivirus software. I don't have any on my Macs. I have in the past, but I've decided just not to use it. Uh, you know, my internet hygiene is good enough in most cases. Um, and it's the problem is antivirus software, because it has to be so privileged and trusted, has problems of its own. And honestly, some of the makers of antivirus software, particularly the free ones, really do horrible things for privacy. And some of these, like we talked about, the, you know, we just talked about a secure home security system that had security bugs. A lot of times these antivirus software applications themselves have security problems. So it's a real mixed bag. Um, again, my stock advice for most people is on Windows. If you've got a Windows machine, just use the Windows Defender that comes with it. It's quite good. And I would trust that honestly over some of the other products like McAfee and Norton and some of those other ones. Uh, For Windows, just use the one that comes with it. On a Mac, it does have some of these built-in security features like Gatekeeper and Notarized Apps. Always try to get your stuff from the Mac App Store whenever possible. And otherwise, if you're going to download software, you know, instead of searching for it, 
enter the you know, the web address by hand. Like in this case, you would find out who makes iTerm2 and then go to their website by typing in their website and then hit return instead of going to a search engine and searching on it and trusting that link. Now, you know, it's 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 not that easy to poison search results. I don't know how this they got away with this one in particular. Like I would honestly, if I'm using DuckDuckGo, which I do, I would probably search on iTerm2 and click on the link that takes me there. But, it, you know, it would be very much worth looking at the resulting site that you ended up at to make sure that that web address looked correct. And whenever possible, if you do know who makes it, I would just go directly to that site. Uh, Microsoft.com, Apple.com, Adobe.com, wherever. If you're downloading software, it's always best to go directly to the, to, to the known site by manually typing it in. All right, so that's the news for the week. And I've just got actually a quick tip of the week that's actually unrelated to any of these stories. Usually I like to try to tie them in, but... Uh, this is totally unrelated, but it came up recently in uh, somewhere that I heard about a fourth credit bureau. And in the United States, when you think about credit bureaus, we always think of the big three. We think of TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. Well, there's actually lots of them out there uh, for more niche industries or whatever. But there, apparently there's another big time credit bureau on the horizon now that uh, you should know about. And it's called Innovis, I-N-N-O-V-I-S. Now, if you're a newsletter subscriber, you have already heard about this. It probably came to you last night in your email. Uh, if you're a blog reader, this has already been up on my blog for a few days now. But basically, a credit freeze is really a powerful tool to prevent identity theft. And it's one that I recommend that everybody take advantage of. Uh, and we've passed laws recently in the United States that makes it completely free to freeze and thaw your, your credit bureau accounts. So cost is no longer an issue. And it's really powerful. It basically prevents anybody, including yourself, by the way, from opening up new credit in your name. So that means that if you need to get a brand new credit card or get a new loan, and also, unfortunately, credit, re credit reports are used other places too, probably places they shouldn't be, like by prospective employers, uh, oftentimes will run a credit report on you, a credit check on you, and oftentimes when you apply for a job, you give them permission to do so. And uh, other things, too, that they're kind of credit adjacent, like if you're getting a brand new cell phone, sometimes even if you're not getting a loan uh, to pay for the phone, but if, you, if you're, it's like a utility, right? If you're going, getting new power service or gas service or whatever at your house, uh, they want to know that you're you know, pretty good with your money and you're, you're likely to keep paying your bill. So cell phone companies, utility companies, anything where you might be doing a long-term contract often they will also want to see your credit report. So in those cases, you're going to have to be able to go to the proper website and you can ask them. You don't have to do all three. Uh, you can say, hey, which of these credit services do you actually use? So I could just go and thaw that one account. And you can do it for a certain amount of time. You can usually set a certain number of days and after which it will automatically refreeze. So anyway, that's just regular credit freeze talk there. But there's a new kid on the block, basically. And so there's now a fourth place where you should go and freeze your credit, and it's called Innovus. So if you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, right now it's the top article there. And in there are the links for all four services uh, for how to freeze credit for all four of them. And you would have to go to each one individually. And I would just recommend that uh, some of them have ways that you can just request a PIN and not set up an account with them. But it's honestly, it's just easier to set up an account and plant your flag Go ahead and make an account on these things so that no one else can do it in your name. Another form of identity theft. Uh, so just go ahead to each of these four companies and create an account on their websites and then proceed to freezing your credit. And then when you need to thaw it, you just log back into those websites 
and either use the pin code or whatever the or passcode that they provided you to unlock it. Or I think if you once you have an account, if you just log into the account, I think you can also just thaw it out. So a couple more quick things. First of all, uh, because credit companies make money off of these credit checks, they do not like it when you try to freeze your credit because you've now cut them off from making any money on you. So some of them will try to bait and switch you. Uh, so beware of them trying to sell you on a credit lock that is different than a credit freeze. You want the credit freeze. And also just FYI, uh, you can freeze the credit for your children as well. So if they've got a social security number, that is potentially something that someone could get uh, their hands on and open credit in your kid's name. So you might want to consider doing it for them as well. So there you have it, your news and tip of the week. All right, that's going to do it for today. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't. That way you will not miss any of these wonderful episodes and all these great upcoming shows I'm about to tell you about. Uh, next week, we've got an interview with Jason Kelly from the EFF. And uh, as soon as that Apple CSAM report hit, I immediately reached out to EFF because I knew I wanted to talk to somebody about that. Uh, so even though I talked about this uh, extensively recently on a new show, I really wanted to talk to somebody from EFF about this. So uh, even though Apple has delayed the rollout of these features, I really wanted to get their opinion on this and kind of dive into that issue. So we've got to talk about that next week. And note that those new features were to be debuted in iOS version 15, which comes out today, uh, the day this podcast airs. Uh, I will be talking about that uh, on a new show. There's a lot of privacy and security features in iOS 15. You might want to wait a little bit and see how people are liking iOS 15 before you upgrade, upgrade to it. Uh, you definitely need to be running iOS 14.8. That's a security update that you definitely want to install. But in terms of the big feature update for iOS 15, you might want to hang on a little bit. So I plan to talk about some of the features that come with that in two weeks on the next new show. Also around that time, that October, uh, that'll be National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. That is next month. I will be participating in that as a National Cybersecurity Awareness Champion. Uh, and part of my duties as a champion will be to inform you guys. So we'll be talking about that next week. And I think I may use that as uh, an excuse to do another challenge coin promotion. So if you're not familiar with the coins, you can go to d20key.com, d20key.com, uh, and click on the coin tab and you'll find information and pictures there. But they're really cool. Uh, I'm so glad I minted these coins. There are only 100 of them on the planet right now, and there's about 60 of them left to give away. So stay tuned for information about how you might get your hands on one of those super cool challenge coins. So I mentioned the retreat, and one of the things I came away from from that retreat was I have decided that I really want to focus most of my efforts on the podcast. I do lots of things. I mean, you know, I try to get the word out. I know that different people learn different ways and prefer to learn different ways. You know, so I've got the blog, I've got the book, I've got the newsletter, I've got this podcast, I've got my social media feeds, I teach classes, and I give free webinars. I've, there's, I've got lots of different ways that I'm trying to get the word out there. But I've decided that I really want to focus a lot of my efforts on the podcast. So I'm going to be trying to add some, maybe some new cool features. I'm thinking about doing some podcasts that are dedicated to particular topics. Right now I have a new show and an interview show that I kind of go back and forth on. But I think I'm going to put together some shows that are dedicated to specific security and privacy topics. So if you have any feedback on what those should be, what you'd like to hear about, if you're one of my patrons already, you're on Discord, we can chat about it there, which is a lot of fun. By the way, it's a great reason to become a patron on Patreon. But you can also uh, just shoot me an email. Send me an email uh, to feedback at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. 
And again, uh, I will do actually a formal listener survey for the podcast at some point. I do one of those per year, usually around New Year's. But I'll I'll take your feedback anytime. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks for listening. No new reviews for the book or the podcast this week. So if I see some of those, I'll keep an eye on those. But if I see some reviews, uh, I will read them here on the air. And I would obviously love to get more of those. It's always good to have fresh reviews, too. So even though I've had some in the past, I really need to keep them going. So please uh, think about dropping a really nice review on Amazon. So I haven't gotten any new podcast reviews in quite a while. I'd love to get some more of those. It really helps the podcast get noticed. And since I'm focusing on those, I would really love to get some more reviews. And if I see those pop up on uh, iTunes, I will read them here. Actually, if you do review somewhere else, like Spotify or one of the other main podcast outlets, shoot me an email, let me know it's there, and I will go look for it there, and I will read that on the air as well. All right, everybody, take care out there, stay safe, and until next week, as always, don't get caught with your garbage down.